want to rock. Bernie and Sid in the morning on the Red Apple Podcast Network. Welcome to Bo Snurley's Rush Hour on this Thanksgiving Day, ladies and gentlemen. A special presentation today with us is Dean Carianis. You know him. He is our resident historian of the show, and Dean is also the principal of the website HistoryAuthor.com. Happy Thanksgiving, Dean. How are you? Well, thank you. I'm great, James. Happy Thanksgiving to you and everybody out there in your listening audience. Always an honor to be on WABC. It makes makes you feel close to Russ again from the old days to the WABC. So thank you. Yes, as you all or may know, you may not know, Dean worked with us on the Rush Limbaugh program. He's one of the web producers there. And in addition to that, Dean is an author in his own right. Thanksgiving must be fun because you and your wife both <laughs> do you have a you do are you having a Greek cooking Thanksgiving? How does that work? Yes, yeah, a traditional Thanksgiving, you know, pastichos, manicopata, taropata, yemesta, feta cheese, just like the pilgrims. Exact same <laughs> <traditional> <laughs> menu. <laughs> oh man! Yeah, buckled papucha, half of an oil drum cut in half, right? Roast the lamb over that. Lamb's not in season right now, but still, you could freeze it. And why not? That's what that's what we do. We like to cook up a feast for any excuse at all, and uh, it's very much like America. You blend everything in there, right? That's part of our Thanksgiving. Why should we leave those things behind? And you are a columnist with the New York Sun. In fact, I understand, Dean, not to brag on you, but I understand that you are, in terms of uh, <clears throat> readership, perhaps the number one columnist, the most widely read columnist at the New York Sun. I hope I'm right about that. Yes, that's what they tell me. And uh, I'm always waiting for that to, to drop off. But, you know, I, I am shocked. I am as shocked as anyone. But I said it's uh, all those years of pursuing excellence and being on the cutting edge just and when we try to do it, the New York Sun always be looking forward, not being like a lot of these news sources that just put out a lot of retweets and they just quote a lot of the same wire stories, just rewrite wire copy. Uh, if you go to nysun.com, you'll see some of those kinds of things. And it's a lot of the material that I used to send Rush. For instance, uh, every year we would spend Thanksgiving together. Coco, George over at the website would be off and it would be me, Coco Jr. and Rush uh, always on Thanksgiving because Cookie and Coco would take off, and I would try to send him a bunch of little things on Thanksgiving and, and just look ahead, and that's what I try to do at the New York Sun, so thank you for mentioning that, and thanks to everyone who reads it, who goes there, who subscribes. In fact, we're having a Black Friday sale, since you gave me the chance for a naked plug, so people can go there, and it was the first penny daily, and you could still get it for a penny. Amazing. That's great. Now, <clears throat> you know what? Later on in the show, I'm going to read what I decided to do, Dean, Instead of reading from Rush's book, The Way Things Ought to Be, he did that chapter where he described the Thanksgiving story in his first book. And that book, by the way, sold millions of copies. And that's one of the reasons why I think there was the reemergence of the true Thanksgiving story, because Rush did it in his first book. And what I decided to do this year was go back to the show and actually read from the transcript of Rush reading from his book and embellishing it and with a few minor embellishments of my own. So that's what I'm going to do this year is go back and I pull the transcript from the show and I'll read from the transcript of Rush reading from his book. But no matter how you slice it, it's still the true Thanksgiving story. And we have, I think as a nation, 
a lot to be thankful for. So as I was saying, so this year, Dean, what I'm going to do this year is just read from the transcript of Rush reading it. After all, who better, what better storyteller? And I'm just so excited that I see it now popping up in many places. And of course, there are many, <clears throat> I want to call them pretenders. I guess they're not. But they're claiming the, the Thanksgiving, the true Thanksgiving story as their own, as if they came up with it. But it doesn't matter. And I think Rush would have loved that, too. Because yeah, it would have driven us nuts, but he would have loved it. <laughs> it would have driven all of us nuts if they were taking his stuff, but he would just be happy the message is getting out there, which I think is great for people to remember. Right. Now, this, and, and that true Thanksgiving story has a lot to do, even today, Dean, uh, with, with the way that our society is going. And you see this uh, in the college campuses. You see this, this, this overdrive move to make America socialist. I don't want to say again because it never was. But you see the socialism spread. I remember reading early on in, in my broadcast career, someone turned me on to Hayek and said, you got to read this book. And now you look at it, it that book came out uh, close to the end of World War II, and it was a warning against socialism. And it seems that it has spread throughout Europe it is spreading through many of the African uh, nations on, on the African continent. South America is infested with it in many countries, although there was just in the election in Argentina that seemed to swing in the other direction. What, let's just talk for a moment about this, this urge for socialism. You study history. What, what do you think is responsible for this continued drive toward many cultures toward socialism as a way of life? Wow, big question. And I think it's that people believe what they want to believe and they're so, they're so seduced by that easy path, right? Like Ayn Rand said, uh, maybe in the 30s, the 40s, she said people could be forgiven for believing Marxism would work before it had been tried anywhere. And this is a frequent lie that you here. I've written about this in the New York Sun and elsewhere, but I love this line. Well, true communism has never been tried. Every time it fails, every time socialism fails, anywhere, they, they come in at first, like Bernie Sanders in, in Venezuela. Oh, it's great. This is going to be the paradise. In fact, uh, the fellow who ran on the Communist Party USA ticket, Gus, I forget his last name, but he was the, he was the guy that Brennan voted for, the CIA director, and, and lied about didn't didn't tell us when the or didn't tell the U.S. when they were doing a background check. He said North Korea, this is going to be the paradise. This is going to be a big vacation destination because communism there is just going so great. And then it fails, and it's well, it was never tried. And I've I've never heard one capitalist say, well, capitalism has never been tried because people blame capitalism for everything, and we just kind of shrink away and go, yeah, well, it was bad, but we can do better. And we quote guys like Hayek, maybe we'd be better off quoting Salma Hayek, because I think she gets more attention probably than these economic domes. But I think all of us do that, right? We want to believe that, well, you're telling me I don't really have to work. I just have to vote a certain way. I don't really have to reach inside myself and be excellent and work at it. And uh, Rush always said that conservatism was an intellectual pursuit and it required work. It wasn't passive. It wasn't just sitting there. And anything that, that wasn't actively trying to be conservative would eventually go to the left and drift off because there's always people who you go into their life and they say, 
you know, I'm tired of driving this car of my life. Will you drive it for me? I could just sit in the back seat and maybe read some comic books that I have to catch up on. And people buy it. And it's amazing to see in Argentina, if your listeners go back and look at just how prosperous it was. It was up there with the United States, rivaling the United States at the time, before they listened to this siren song of socialism. Venezuela, of course, it, it sits on a lake of oil, the, some of the biggest oil reserves in the world, if not the biggest. And what happened? They came in, we're going to fix it. They teach you some hatred. Hate's very easy to teach people. <laughs> and negativism and envy. You know, envy's a sin, too. They, they talked about greed in the 80s, right? But envy is also one of those deadly sins. And people get mad and they get envious and they say, look at that guy. He's got more than you do. I'm going to take it and give it to you and we'll, we'll, we'll make it a little fair. And I think that that's part of it is that, that hate and negativism. Again, like Rush used to say, nobody needs to teach you how to be negative. That's why there's all those books on positive thinking because negative thinking comes very naturally to us. And I think when you hear that song and you hear, hey, you're, someone else is to blame. I know your life stinks. I know you're not where you thought you would be. I know maybe you don't have the best job. I know you haven't gotten a raise in 20 years, maybe. But you know what? It's not you. Oh, my gosh. What, what great message could there be, right? And we're going to fix all that. We're going to make sure everyone's equally happy and get rid of the people who taught you to hate. And uh, I think it's uh, amazing now to see, because it's so rare, a pushback in Argentina that maybe they're going to try a, a little bit of a of a rollback of all and that. Because what, what else are you going to do? 143% inflation. It's insane. You can't print your way to prosperity. And who knows? Maybe they may, may even try it here. Yeah, we'll see. Well, he, you know, his symbol is a chainsaw, which I found really impressive because he's uh, – saying he's going to cut spending that much down there, the new president of Argentina. <laughs> so I think it's a, I think any conservative would cheer that. Well, we're closer to home, to Dean, closer to home. This week, Eric Adams asked, there was a meeting, um, he was at, at a meeting, and there were very wealthy people in the room, and what he asked them to do was reach deeper into their pockets and to help fill the gaps of the New York City a budget, the budget, of course, suffering from this explosion of migration, the unchecked illegal migration into our country under the Biden administration. And one of the things that I reminded listeners, again, something that Rush talked about, and Rush was for a while the only national figure talking about this, the fact that wealthy people in America are responsible for paying 90, uh, anywhere between 90 and 95 percent of all of the taxes. Most people labor under the illusion that it is the middle class that funds government operations and that the wealthy are a bunch, a few wealthy people, they're greedy, they're holding on, they're stingy, they use tax breaks that no one else can use, and they're not paying their quote-unquote fair share, when in fact the opposite is true. And if you look at this history of New York City right now, there was a story out earlier this year that a trillion dollars in financial services business has left New York because of taxation, because of crime. And so you wonder if these cities are finding themselves in trouble while you keep taxing the wealthy and then you add more taxes and surcharges, you tell them constantly and berate them that they're not paying their fair share when in fact they're paying the largest segment of taxes. And then you come back and say, you're still not doing enough you need to give more to cover the budget deficits that we have created, we meaning liberals, have created through our policies of open borders, open welfare, 
open spending that never seem anytime you mention spending cuts that uh, if you're a Republican you get excoriated for it but now you've got uh, Mayor Adams saying we have to cut city budgets by 5% and those are draconian cuts they're going to hurt people but these were cross the board spending cuts no one's ever mentioning why don't we go in program by program and see where we can save instead no just let's just cut government spending including police spending by 5% yeah. And and not realizing the consequences. Even the great social commentator, the great policy maven, Cardi B has weighed in against it <laughs> and saying this is dreadful. She didn't use those words. She threw a few F-bombs in there. But this is just going to cause more crime go. than ever before. Yeah, they're cutting the number of police. Not just they're cutting out the coffee or Kojak's going to have to buy his own lollipop there. Or a Barney Miller, you know, is going to have to get his own mustache clippings, pay for that. But we're talking about the number of policemen and they're driving policemen to retirement. And that's another thing. These are all unintended consequences. And we talked about earlier about why people will drift towards socialism. Well, they don't think of these unintended consequences. They don't think beyond one or two spaces down the board. They just think, well, that sounds really good. Let's get rid of them. Well, what's going to happen? You're not going to keep the cops who are good. They're going to go out to places like Westchester and to New Jersey and to Connecticut. And then you're going to start rushing people in, which Eric Adams is already starting to do. Russian cops right out of the academy who don't have the experience, who don't have the, the knowledge, who don't have the training to be good policemen. And then what are you going to see? You're going to see something like, speaking of socialism, look what they did to Eric Garner, right? Guys trying to beat the city out of a few cents in taxes. Man, that's not going to be allowed. <laughs> you know, the, guy, the guy ends up uh, unable to breathe, ends up dead on the street of Manhattan for selling some loose cigarettes. Like, they want their money. They are hungry for it, and they're cutting it from places. I think, as, as crazy as it sounds oftentimes, they want to cause that pain. That's why they always talk about cutting the firemen. And yet another thing you and I heard from Rush many times, they, they're, we're going to cut the firemen, we're going to cut schools, we're going to have to cut police. Well, now they're really having to do it because there's no money anywhere else that they can cut. So they're, well, we have to do everything across the board. And then when anything goes wrong, when you have somebody – there, like Garner getting killed. Well, that's because we had to cut these things. And and in Eric Adams' case, amazing, he's gonna he's already blaming it on President Biden partially, saying the federal government, which uh, to me makes it a little interesting that he ended up getting raided and is being investigated for those campaign donations. Well, let's from talk Turkey. about that. Let's let's pick up that point when we get back. Got to stop for a break here. It is Thanksgiving Day on WABC Talk Radio seventy seven. James Golden. A.K.A. Bo Snurley, Bo Snurley's Rush Hour. With me is our resident historian, Dean Carianis, historyauthor.com, columnist with the New York Sun, an amazing guy. He's also the author of a uh, of cooking book, Greek-style cooking, he and his wife. So what a perfect guest to have on Thanksgiving Day. We're coming back, and we will continue this discussion. I want to pick up this point of Eric Adams and the raid when we get back. Do not go away. And you are listening to Bernie and Sid, God help you, on the Red Apple Podcast Network. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Bo Snurley. It is Rush Hour. Bo Snurley's Rush Hour here on WABC with us. Resident historian Dean Carianis. 
Dean, you began talking about Eric Adams and this uh, raid that took place, the FBI. And this was quite stunning. So the day that he goes to Washington, D.C. for this long-awaited sit-down with Joe Biden that he had been begging for, the president's got to do more, president's got to do more. And then the president came to New York and didn't see Eric Adams. Eric Adams and a group of other officials go down to Washington, D.C. The day that he's supposed to meet, hours before he's, or minutes before he's supposed to meet, Joe Biden all of a sudden, Eric Adams announces, oops, got to go. His, camp- <laughs> his lead campaign person had been, as we learned later in the day, and I was wondering, what could, what could it be? Is there some, some terrorist threat? Is something happened in New York? I was following this real time because they did not explain why Eric Adams had to duck out of this all-important meeting and head back to New York. Said something's come up. What came up? was that his, his, his uh, lead campaign person, Ms. Grug's FBI raid. We later learned that she wasn't the only one that was raided by the FBI. And now the Adams administration, Adams, is under investigation for his dealings with, uh, with people from Turkey regarding fast-tracking a project that apparently or could look like it was a political favor. This cannot be an accident. What, is, what was your thought on the timing of this and what's happening here? Yeah, I missed that old thing. Remember the appearance of impropriety? And they used to talk about optics so much. Every lazy hack writer out there was, was talking about optics for about four years there. And now suddenly there's not a thing in the story that says Trump critic or Biden critic. It doesn't say anything. He's just a man that's out on an island, I guess, literally Manhattan. And nobody ever points out that he's been a critic of President Biden on this, that he's been demanding more money and saying, hey, you're you're not solving this problem. This is a federal responsibility. And whether we agree with those things or not, how can nobody have made this connection at all? Just this is completely normal. They they call him a moderate, sometimes even a conservative mayor of New York City. He's not even a fellow Democrat anymore. They're kind of taking away that protection from him. I was shocked by that, when, that, that nobody bothered to bring that up. And I'm talking about some of the, the people that we would consider conservative media or alternative media or whatever people want to call it, or even on Twitter. I didn't see anybody who said, wait a minute, isn't this a little bit odd that there's this timing? And especially since it, it, you wonder, at least, the very least, is the president cracking down on these kind of things because he's worried about his own entanglements and that, that what is coming potentially with him, with impeachment and investigation of they're going to, I guess, look into if he, if he laundered, I guess you'd say, the money that was given to his son and to his brothers so that he could get a taste of it. So it, it just seemed like this must be a much bigger story or could be. And it's weird because the media loves to speculate, right? They, they would love baseless speculation. I'm sure that if Donald Trump had sent Eric Adams to to go and, and testify or gone after him this way or had, or had even mentioned this, it would have been a huge story that he was using the power of the federal government to go after a critic. And yet there's been none of that here. And I don't even think Mayor Adams has brought that up in his own defense. No, he hasn't. And it's just stunning. Now, who knows what's going on behind the scenes? And Eric Adams, of course, has now formed a legal defense fund. So you And he's hired an attorney, a criminal attorney. While he's saying at the same time, I've done nothing wrong. Of course, I've done nothing wrong. 
I've preached, and everybody that knows me knows I keep, I tell people, you have to follow the law, you have to follow the law. But apparently, this thing may go deeper and it may swirl deeper in an election year than anyone would want to, uh, to admit at this point. The ramifications could be stunning coming into 2024. Let's briefly just, in, and since we're in the political realm, let me ask you, Dean, as a columnist, what do you think about the Republican and where they are in the state of things right now? Let's start with the, uh, the new speaker. What are your thoughts on the new Speaker of the House, the process? Matt Gates was excoriated as being some kind of bumbling idiot for actually um, leading the process to, uh, to call Kevin McCarthy out and eventually to help dispose Kevin McCarthy as speakership. The, I, I read article after article about the Republican clown car, but it seems to me, and I wonder if you have similar thoughts or not, that what ultimately came out of this was something that could be good for a change, despite the fact that we have another continuing resolution. Even this one doesn't end at Christmas time like most of them do. It goes into next year, and the new speaker is saying that, look, this is not the way that we're going to do things in the future. We are going to get this spending under control. We're going to move back to regular order and having appropriations bills come out of the committees. In other words, he's devolving the power from the speakership back down to members of Congress and to the committees of Congress to actually come up with the the budget for the United States. Do you see this whole process as good, ultimately bad? Is Matt Gates an idiot uh, and and led the the clown car? Where, where, where's your your feeling on all of this? Well, I'll tell you, I have been impressed with Speaker Johnson, and I wrote a column just just the other day. If you can go back and check and praising Hakeem Jeffries, the Democratic minority leader, for standing for Israel and for saying there's no way you can negotiate with Hamas. It was a very rarely said thing. And I, I found the same thing about Speaker Johnson. is see, in, in that narrow bit of it, and Speaker Johnson being a backbencher, he seems to be somebody who is just going to govern. He doesn't know the way it's done. For instance, what you just mentioned, the tradition is you give the American people a government shutdown scare for Christmas. And you schedule it right before an important, either an election or before Christmas, and you try to make everything horrible. And, oh, you go do those videos at Jellystone National Park with the sleigh ride concession, and you terrify people about it. He said, we're going to do what we're supposed to do. And he seems a very mellow guy. He doesn't have a long resume, so I don't think he's been infected and become of Washington and just doing things the way that they're done. The most they've really found on him so far is, they don't like that he's a Christian. They don't like a flag he threw outside, or flew rather, outside the Speaker's office. They say he doesn't have any money. He's not rich. So that must mean this was my favorite thing. I forget exactly what paper it was in. It might have been the Daily Beast. But this must mean he's going to cash in on lobbying after he leaves. Well, okay, <laughs> maybe he will. Who knows? But he's not a rich guy now. He doesn't really have any money, any assets. He does a lot of volunteering. He's adopted that was another thing that he adopted i guess and taken in two young black children and they said well that's that's always suspicious a republican does that they adopt anybody never <laughs> never mind that you know you remember what they did to chief justice john roberts they they sent investigators down to mexico to find out how he got kids that looked white from mexico because they thought this was a big scandal i mean really reprehensible stuff so they haven't really found anything on him and i think he's just 
Oh, they, he's like but, a mellow guy. Au contraire, Dean. They have found something <laughs> on him. He's a white Christian nationalist. That was the thing that they were b- bouncing around in their echo chamber of the mainstream press. White Christian nationalist. Yeah, that's a great new thing. Yeah, right. here's a guy. He happens to be white. He happens to be Christian. And guess what? He actually loves his country. He's kind of has nationalistic impulse. Oh, my goodness. Isn't that terrible? That's yeah. it. That's the extent that they've <laughs> been able to come after him. Yeah, well, the usual stuff. And what a great contrast for, for people. You know, somebody who just seems to want to do the job in there. And like I said, and, and it's a son. Everyone likes Hakeem Jeffries and says, okay, I don't know. I don't know that much about him, but I did like that part of what he said. But I think you get some new, different people. Everyone says they want younger people, people who aren't politicians. Well, give them a shot at it. And I think a lot of these guys who they were worried about taking out McCarthy, and I'm, I'm sure you know better than I, but you both hear from people who are in Republican circles. And you know, this guy was a, a very political guy. He was a guy nobody really wanted, but nobody wanted to cross. And he said the right things and dreamed of having that speaker's office. I think it was fine that he was in there. I think he was crazy as Lucy with the football to trust Nancy Pelosi to save his job. I don't know how you, you believe that. I mean, you think Cindy Lou Who was naive if she sees the Grinch there with no pants and he's all green and mistakes him for Santa Claus? I mean, how how did McCarthy think that Pelosi would ever save his job, his speakership, after he averted the last government shutdown? But Johnson seems like a guy who is just doesn't know. He's, he's not really, he doesn't really care. And I think that's great. And a lot of our greatest presidents haven't been the ones with the great resumes. Those guys, like Herbert Hoover, they tend to fan out, uh, flame out rather, a little bit. The guys with a, with a lot of experience, for instance, George H.W. Bush even, d- of course, he's a, he's a kind of a special case, but look at John Quincy Adams, a brilliant guy, had so many jobs and did various things, ends up losing to Andrew Jackson, who's far more influential president. FDR, not a particularly bright guy, was considered a very intellectual lightweight. He ends up coming in and ends up, of course, being president for life, wins four times the presidency during the war, whatever we think of his policies and and whatnot. But that's what I think of a guy like Johnson. I think he doesn't know what he doesn't know. And you do common sense things, which is part of the Thanksgiving story and the story of the pilgrims. Uh, I wrote last year in my column that those guys couldn't afford to sit around the faculty lounge and theorize. It was life or death. And when you're dealing with life or death, you realize something like, well, everybody can just get an equal share, and this is really going to be nirvana, that it doesn't work. And you say, everyone's going to have to work, and we're going to have to figure out real solutions. And that's what capitalism unleashed, and that's how it, these free markets unleash the bounty that we have today, when everyone's going to stuff themselves, and, and maybe some people are going to complain about it. But that's exactly what we're going to do, because we like food, and we have that prosperity, and we sometimes take it for granted. And I think as we do... That's when you see that slide towards socialism. Dean Karianis is with us, ladies and gentlemen. He's the resident historian, Boston Early's Rush Hour. We're going to take a quick break, come back and wrap it up with Dean, and then we'll get to reading from Rush Limbaugh and the true Thanksgiving story here on WABC. Don't go away. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, 
you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Bernard McGurk. Unacceptable is throwing your beer can on the subway tracks. <laughs> Sid Rosenberg. I don't believe it's a three-man race. Bernie and Sid in the morning on the Red Apple Podcast Network. With us, Dean Carianis, a historian himself. You can check him out at historyauthor.com. You can also check out his columns in the New York Sun. Uh, he's part of the Rush Limbaugh alumni. He is was a web producer with Rush. And he's also an author. He and his wife. You need to check out their book. Gene, those books on cooking. Just get, tell us one that if you had, <laughs> tell us one that we should get, and and we can always go to Amazon and find it. Which one? Yeah, well, mine is Regional Grid Cooking. So that was nice of you to bring up my book. Yeah, well, my wife and I wrote that in 2005. She's Irish Canadian. Kathy is. So I was teaching her this, and now she can go to a story and speak food in Queens and order the Greek food, and my parents never got tired of laughing that uh, they would speak back to her in Greek because her pronunciation was perfect. So, yeah, and you can see some pictures in there also, by the way, family pictures and a lot of family recipes in there. So it's something that for a holiday like Thanksgiving is a great one. Maybe I'll post something at History Dean, which is my Twitter handle, if anyone wants a free recipe, get an idea what they get out of my cookbook. But I don't. I don't really plug it much. I guess. I guess maybe I should because it's kind of you and so many other people that tell me that they enjoyed it, not just making things from it, but reading it. Absolutely. Now, last question, Dean. As time runs out, so many people are discouraged. You see the war going on with Israel, Hamas. You see uh, so many things: crime out of control in our own country, borders broken. You see horrific stories every day. Are you still optimistic about the future of America, and are you uh, at all looking forward to the future here, or do you think America's done on a downward spiral, start looking for that land uh, somewhere else other than America? Well, there is nowhere else, so I guess we have to stay here and fight for it, and that's that's something that has been bugging me a little bit lately, and I haven't really written or talked about it, but why not? We're all friends here. I'll just mention it, but... I've found a lot of people now seem to want to say, well, we're conservatives, we love America, but we're giving up on it, we're all going to move. They'll tell you, move to a little place with your family, just get the money you can, and and wait, I guess, for the mushroom clouds to drop. You look at a lot of conservative media, it's a lot of talking about buying gold, a lot of things about buying survival rations, which I have things like that. I was a Boy Scout, right? Be prepared, get get some flour. Certainly all these things came in useful during the pandemic. My wife, because she did those Canadian winters, believe me, she always has plenty of stuff stocked. But is that the plan? Is that what we're going to do? We're just going to try to find another place? And it reminds me of what uh, President Reagan said. He told the story of a Cuban refugee came there and said it was how hard it was to get to America. And somebody said, we forget how lucky we are in America. And this Cuban gentleman said, no, you're lucky. I was lucky. I had somewhere to escape to. That if we, if we, Americans, he's like, now this man was becoming an American. He's like, well, we have nowhere else to go. As, as they say in Stripes, Bill Murray, we've been thrown out of every decent country in the world, right? No one else, no one else wants us. So we wanted to make our own place. We wanted to be able to say, the heck with you and thumb our noses at every other country and, and those systems. So I, I don't see how we can't, I don't see how we have the luxury of not caring, of not being optimistic. When we see the damage that's being done 
by the alternative in places like China and places like the Middle East and places like you were talking about in South America, the Maruto diet. Can you imagine a prosperous country, a rich country, a happy country being so destroyed by socialism that people are, are losing weight, that you have North Koreans who are physically shorter than their South Korean counterparts living under capitalism? I, I don't see how, if our eyes are open, how we can't advocate for America and say that there's a better way because it's the truth and the truth always wins. The truth is persuasive. If it doesn't seem like it's winning, then I think we just have to do a better job persuading people, tell them positive, uplifting stories. And not again to toot my own horn, but it's one reason that I love working for Rush. And one reason I love working for the New York Sun is because that's what we try to do is be positive. And we had a front row seat. Everybody out there who listened to Rush had an ear row seat, had a front ear seat, whatever you want to call it, to Rush when he struggled that last year of his life and always was positive. And I think he loved being thankful, not so much Thanksgiving. He always was thankful, usually on Christmas more than Thanksgiving, as you know. But I don't see how, after seeing and hearing that, as easy as it is to just lay down and give up, as easy as, as, easy as it is to just get your bunker and try to move out to Ruby Ridge, I hate to tell you, they won't leave you alone wherever it is that you go. Not to not to not to make common cause. No, but I understand. Plan, but you know and, what I mean. And let me just end it with this: this that Rush, the last time he was asked, "Is it time to panic?" The last time he was asked, said, "It is never time to panic. We cannot give up on America." And Dean, thank you so much, my friend, for being with us on this Thanksgiving Day. Always a pleasure. Tell people again where they can find you, Dean. They can find me at nysun.com. Find my columns there. We have that Black Friday sale, so you can get the Penny Daily. We predate the New York Times. Go there to nysun.com. You can find me at historyauthor.com or at History Dean on Twitter. I am wherever you want me to be. Dean, thank you for being with us today. Happy Thanksgiving, my friend. Thank you. Happy Thanksgiving to everybody. One of the things that Rush Limbaugh fans would look forward to each and every Thanksgiving season was Rush Limbaugh going through the origins of Thanksgiving. He wrote about it in his first book. And every year he would read from that book and tell us the story, the real story of Thanksgiving. One of the things that I've decided to do is to maintain the tradition by me reading from Rush's transcript of Rush reading from the story of Thanksgiving. He started out by telling us the story of the pilgrims. Began in the early part of the 17th century. The Church of England under King James I was persecuting anyone and anyone who did not recognize its absolute civil and spiritual authority. The first pilgrims were Christian rebels, folks, is what Rush told us those who challenged King James' ecclesiastical authority and those who believed strongly in freedom of worship were hunted down. They were imprisoned, sometimes executed for their belief. A group of separatists, Christians, who didn't want to buy into the Church of England or live under the rule of King James I, fled to Holland. And there they established a community of themselves. After 11 years, about 40 of them, having heard about this new world Christopher Columbus had discovered, decided, let's head there, let's go there. Forty of them agreed to make a perilous journey to the new world, where they knew they would certainly face hardships, but the reason they did so 
was so they could live and worship God according to the dictates of their own consciences and their beliefs. On August 1st, 1620, the Mayflower set sail. The Mayflower carried a total of 102 passengers, including 40 pilgrims led by William Bradford. On the journey, Bradford set up an agreement, a contract that established how they would live once they got there. The contract set forth just and equal laws for all members of the new community, irrespective of their religious beliefs or their political beliefs. Where did the revolutionary ideas expressed in the Mayflower Compact come from? From the Bible. The pilgrims were a deeply, devoutly religious people, completely steeped in the lessons of the Old and New Testaments. They looked to the ancient Israelites for their example, and because of the biblical precedent set forth in Scripture, they never doubted their experiment would work. They believed in God. They believed they were in the hands of God. As you know, said Rush, this was no pleasure cruise, friends. The journey to the New World on the tiny, by today's standard sailing ship, it was long. It was arduous. There was sickness. There was seasickness. It was wet. It was the opposite of anything you think of today as a cruise on the ocean ocean, when, on the open ocean. When they landed in New England in November, they found, according to Bradford's detailed journal, a cold, barren, desolate wilderness. There were no friends to greet them, he wrote. There were no houses to shelter them. There were no inns where they could refresh themselves. There was absolutely nothing. The sacrifice they had made for freedom was just beginning. During the first winter, half the pilgrims, including Bradford's own wife, died either of starvation, sickness, or exposure. Yet they endured that first winter. When spring finally came, they had by that time met the indigenous people, the Indians. And indeed, the Indians taught the settlers how to plant corn, fish for cod, and skin beavers and other animals for coats. But there wasn't any prosperity. They did not yet prosper. They were still dependent. They were still confused. They were still in a new place, essentially alone among like-minded people. And Rush says, this is important to understand because this is where modern American history lessons often end. Thanksgiving is actually explained in some textbooks as a holiday for which the pilgrims gave thanks to the Indians for saving their lives rather than what it really was. That happened, Rush says, don't misunderstand, that all happened, but that's not according to to William Bradford's journal, what they ultimately gave thanks for. Here is the part that has been omitted. The original contract that they made on the Mayflowers, they were traveling to the New World, they had actually had to enter into that contract with their merchant sponsors in London because they had no money of their own. They needed a sponsor. They found merchants in London to sponsor them. The merchants in London were making an investment. And as such, the pilgrims agreed that everything they produced go into a common store or a bank or a common account 
and each member of the community was entitled to one common share in this bank. Out of this, the merchants would be repaid until they were paid off. All the land they cleared and the houses they built belonged to the community as well. Everything belonged to everybody, and everybody had one share in it. They were going to distribute it equally. That was considered to be the epitome of fairness, sharing the hardships, burdens, everything like that. Nobody owned anything. It was a commune, folks. It was the forerunner to communes we saw in the 60s and the 70s out in California and other parts of the country. It was complete with organic vegetables, by the way. That's Rush and his amazing sense of humor. Bradford, who had become the new governor of the colony, recognized that it wasn't working. It was costly and it was destructive. His own journals chronicle the reasons it didn't work. Branford assigned a plot of land to fix this to each family to work and manage as their own. He got rid of the whole commune structure and assigned a plot of land to each family to work and manage. And whatever they made, however much they made, was theirs. They could sell it. They could share it. They could keep it. Whatever they wanted to do with it, they had the option. What really happened is that they turned loose the power of a free market after enduring months and months of hardship, first on the Mayflower and then getting settled, and then the failure of the common account from which everyone got the same share. There was no incentive for anybody to do anything. And as is human nature, some of the pilgrims were a bunch of lazy twerps, and others busted their rear ends. But it didn't matter. Because even the people that weren't very industrious got the same one share as everyone else did. Bradford wrote about how this just wasn't working. And when we return, we'll wrap up the Rush Limbaugh story of the Thanksgiving story. Keep it right here. Bernard McGurk. Bernard has been a friend of mine for so long. And Sid, you too. Sid Rosenberg. Not good, great. Bernie and Sid in the morning. I love you guys. I listen to you every morning and walk around the house laughing my butt off. On the Red Apple Podcast Network. What William Bradford and his community found was that socialism didn't work, folks. That was what Rush Limbaugh explained in his Thanksgiving story. Let's pick it up from where we left off. Rush said he's going to use the Bradford words, the words that William Bradford put in his own diary. And what, bro- what William Bradford wrote was that the most creative and industrious people had no incentive to work any harder than anyone else. While most of the rest of the world has been experimenting with socialism for well over 100 years, trying to refine it, perfect, and reinvent it, the pilgrims decided early on William Bradford decided to scrap it permanently because it brought out the worst in human nature. It emphasized laziness. It created resentment because in every group of people, you've got, you've got your self-starters, you've got your hard workers, your industrious people, and you've got your lazy twerps and so forth. There was no difference at the end of the day. The resentment sprang up on both sides. So William Bradford wrote about this. He said, 
for this community so far as it was, was found to breed much confusing and discontent and retard much employment that would have been there for their benefit and for their comfort. For most young men that were able and fit for labor and service did repine that they should spend their time and strength to work for other men's wives and children's without any recompense, without any payment. That was thought injustice. Why should you work for other people when you can't work for yourself? What's the point? The pilgrims found that people could not be expected to do their best work without incentive. So what did Bradford's community try next? They unharnessed the power of good old free enterprise by invoking the undergirding capitalistic principle of private property. Every family was assigned its own plot of land to work and permitted to market its own crops and products. And what was that result? This had been very good success, wrote Bradford, for it made all hands, everybody, industrious. So much, so as much more corn was planted than otherwise would have been. It is possible that supply-side economics could have existed before the 1980s, my friends. In no time, the pilgrims found that they had more food than they could eat themselves. Now this, says Rush, is where it gets really good. If you're laboring under the misconception that as I was, Rush says, this misconception that we, many of us were taught in school that the Thanksgiving Day was just set up to thank the Indians for teaching them how to fish, how to, how to plant crops. He said, so what next happened, the pilgrims set up trading posts and exchanged goods with the Indians. The profits from that trading allowed them to pay off their debts to the merchants in London. And the success and prosperity of the Plymouth settlement attracted more Europeans and began what became known as the Great Puritan Migration. The word of the success of the free enterprise, Plymouth Colony spread like wildfire, and that began the Great Migration. Everybody wanted a part of it. There was no mass slaughtering of the Indians. There was no wiping out of the indigenous people. And eventually, in William Bradford's own journal, unleashing the industriousness of all hands ended up producing more than they could ever need themselves. So the trading post began selling, exchanging things with the Indians. And the Indians, by the way, were very helpful. Puritan kid, uh, the Puritan kids had relationships with the children of the Native Americans that they found this killing of the indigenous people stuff, they're talking much, 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 much later. It had nothing to do with the first Thanksgiving. The first Thanksgiving was William Bradford and the Plymouth Colony thanking God for their blessings. That's the first Thanksgiving. Nothing wrong with being grateful to the Indians. Don't misunderstand, says Rush, but the true meaning of Thanksgiving and this is what George Washington recognized in his first Thanksgiving proclamation, was giving thanks to God. And those of us who enjoyed listening to Rush recite that Thanksgiving story 
are still giving thanks to the talent on loan from God that he shared with us for 33 years on the radio. Traditions, my friend. Traditions, so important to all of us. The Thanksgiving Day tradition, having your family, having your friends, your loved ones close to you. Does it get any better than that? Even if your tradition is being thankful by yourself on Thanksgiving Day because you're one of those people that needs alone time. Traditions are good. One of the reasons that we like to remember the Rush Limbaugh Thanksgiving story is to keep the traditions of what America is about alive and to also be thankful that we were able to, for 33 years, those of us that Rush, that worked with Rush and that knew him have, we still have such a fond and impactful memory of that time. This is my own tradition. It is the music of Dave Grusin. Dave Grusin, of course, has been part of GRP Records back in the day. Uh, he did. He worked on so many things. The Tootsie soundtrack is one that stands out and comes to mind quickly. But this is one of my favorite songs. He's a master pianist, composer, arranger. This song is called Thank Song. And I love it. It's Dave Grusin on his piano in a thankful and thoughtful mood. Of all the things to be thankful for, there are so many. I've been blessed with an incredible family from parents that I would not have traded anything for when they were alive and I would not trade anything for now that they are in my memories forever. My extended family, my siblings, the younger, my nieces, nephews, great nieces and nephews, and this year, my grandson that my daughter gave me this year, which was just an amazing blessing, and a great nephew that was actually born at my house, and a strange story that worked out so well including the nurse who saved his life and the amazing crew that saved his life. So much to be thankful always in America. And I'm thankful for you. Thank you for listening. And I hope you have the best Thanksgiving of your life and ever. This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com.